1: everybody! Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host Jonah.
0: And I'm Nico, and man... This is one of those stories where I have been looking forward to this since day one, so I'm like, I'm like itchy to get into it, but you know, fine, 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 fine. We'll do all the high stuff. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Exodus for Podcast. It has been such an amazing time rereading these stories, and I couldn't be happier than to reread them with Jonah, who has such an interesting perspective on them. But before we can get into all that, oh man, I'm so excited. I'm trying to pause myself from getting into it multiple times. I want to thank everybody for being a part of this amazing era of growth for X's for Podcast. Our little show, Jonah... Our precious little Joe about mistreating the disabled and mistreating racial minorities and mistreating women. Wow, man, those Len Wein issues were pretty tough.
1: Yes, they absolutely were, and it's almost shocking how little they hold up today.
0: Really, it is. Now, there's also plenty of positive to say about Len Wein. When Len Wein took over the giant size X-Men, he helped redefine the X-Men for the era, giving us characters such as... Wolverine from his work in Incredible Hulk, along with Herb Trimp, or characters like Nightcrawler, Storm, and Colossus, who dominate this podcast. And this is one of those hallmark stories for me. When I think about big, epic, classic X Men stories, the ones that come to mind are the giant size X Men, the Phoenix Saga, the initial by Dave Cockrum and Chris Claremont, in which Gene becomes the Phoenix, and, you know, the lattice work of the Shiar, blah, blah, blah. And I think about. Proteus, and I think about Dark Phoenix, and you know, I guess in some ways, I still think of X-Men 150, but this past read-through, I don't know that I loved X-Men 150 as much, but rereading this, holy shit did I love it. But getting ahead of myself yet again, Jonah, it has been a weird journey, and we have read so many different conflicting things, and here we are at one of the arcs that I've been telling you about forever. This was the conclusion of so many ideas that had been building over time. How did your brain handle going back to space and Dealing with all of the craziness that we've been dealing with.
1: My mind kind of melted, became one with the universe, became a star, came back to a mortal form, and still has a pretty interesting time trying to understand what exactly I just read and how this story took off, but it is as amazing as it is, if that makes any sense whatsoever.
0: I completely agree. One of the things that we've discussed is that the show, X is for Podcast, consistently has to transform to match the needs ...of the material. For instance, when we began discussing Jonathan Hickman's groundbreaking Dawn of X, we knew we needed a little bit of everybody to come in and really get a debate going. As the X-Men are going to grow, so will the show, and we're changing around hosts here and there, but one of the most central things to this show is Jonah and I working to chart the development of the X-Men. One of the biggest theses that... Theses? Thesai? Theso? thesis people? Thesis people, one of the biggest theses that Jonah and I have put forth since we started is, Jonah, you said you wanted to trace the transformation of these characters from their homely and humble beginnings to the pop culture icons, the new gods, as they might be called in some books. Watching this story, specifically even the ones that surprised you, like Carol, Iliana, this is such a time of change for the X-Men. Do you even recognize these characters sometimes?
1: No, not at all. I can't even describe it. And I can't even find the words. My tongue is just tripping over it, trying to say so many things at once. Because everything feels right now like a really rapid evolution. It started off much slower, but now it's like, we got a whole new list of issues and personal gross and emotional roller coasters thrown at us and just these issues. And it's like, kind of amazing and also kind of overwhelming, but also interesting, but it's also maybe a little too much for a reader to read all of these. Granted, we're reading these consecutively, whereas when these were first released, these came out months apart. But still, it's a lot to absorb.
0: I love that you pointed out that it's we're reading it in one big sitting, and that originally, people had six months to devour this. Today, we're going to be discussing Uncanny X-Men 161 to 166 by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum, except for the final two issues, 165 and 166, which were by Chris Claremont and newcomer penciler Paul Smith. I love Paul Smith. I'm so happy he's here. These stories were released from September of 1982 to February of 1983. This period in time was a fascinating and dynamic change for the X-Men. Beyond some of the advances the story made for the characters, such as Storm realizing the extent of her powers, connecting with the Akanti and following further on the spiritual connections that had been established in 159 and 160, here we see a rapid transformation of the idea of the X-Men. But it all starts, oddly enough, way in the past. We finally got to see Xavier meet Magneto, and, you know, my notes have phrases like, "I roll oh man, you're playing into these archetypes, trope, trope, trope. Jono, how did you feel? Because this issue for me was a little too right on the bullseye.
1: I have to completely agree with that, and I don't think this issue is bad in any stretch of the imagination, but I guess I'm having trouble finding why it's placed here. There's a time and a place for this story, and I guess I just had trouble understanding why they chose to tell it at this moment when there's so much else that could have been going on, because... Uh, This is just recounting Charles and magneto precociously called magnus in this flashback but this it's not really explain why charles remembering these events brings charles out of his catatonic state really it's not charles fighting inner demons it's just charles going through a memory and then waking up going oh i'm fine kind of that's what i'm just confused by is it's uh, i don't think it's bad but i just need to know why this had to be told here it kind of felt like they were buying time but They didn't really need to buy time.
0: I love everything you're saying because it really plays into something that I'd noticed this read that I guess i would never considered before. This big brood space Deathbird Shi'ar saga, which, by the way, Deathbird appears for like six seconds and then just disappears again, and I guess I never thought about that. This big saga started in Uncanny X-Men 154, right after Kitty's Fairy Tale. But, you know, I think I want to go a step further back, and I think I need to include 153. Ah, gosh, I can't stop. I need to go back to 151. So, (laughs) Claremont starts to get this, like, rolling thunder going. In 154, we return to space, we get the Starjammers, and the Brood, and Deathbird, but that's hot on the heels of Kitty's Fairy Tale, which introduced a dragon named Lockheed. Beyond that, 151 and 152 reminded us that there were other schools out in the world. 150 gave us the return of Magneto, and Cyclops. So, all of this building up, in 154, Cyclops is a member of the team again, and it's kind of a quiet moment for the X-Men, as... Half of the team is exploring Magneto's base, and all of a sudden, Corsair's here, and the truth will out, and a lot begins happening. But they settle back on Earth, they stop the Brood, they stop Deathbird, and they stop all of the complications for the Shi'ar. Shortly thereafter, we get a small series of one-shot stories focusing on individual characters. 158 gave us a strong look into Carol Danvers' psyche and life. 159 examined Storm from a spiritual perspective and 160, aged Ileana from roughly six years old to about 13, 14. And this was a period of rapid growth for these characters that kind of came out of nowhere. We'd spent so much time in space, and now all of a sudden we're just kind of like, Hanging the fuck out! 161 is another one of those kind of like hanging the fuck out issues, but it definitely gets that ball rolling again. 161 sees Xavier, still in his catatonic state after his psychic face off with something, reliving the time he met Magneto and a woman named Gabrielle Haller. Gabrielle might be familiar to some fans of the series as reappearing later on, and I'm a pretty big Gabrielle Haller fan, so. I'm pretty glad she's finally here. We come to find out that Xavier used his powers to help heal Gabrielle's fractured psyche. Okay, my first problem with this issue. Jonah, could you not figure out if anybody knew if anyone was a mutant?
1: yeah and this comes up quite a bit that charles when he's casually just trying to probe into someone's mind to see you know a little bit just testing waters his first encounter with magnus is that he has some psychic barrier where he can't penetrate his thoughts and his mind is like oh well i guess maybe it's just natural or whatever and we also see this again later on in 165 where he's talking with iliana and she has a psychic shield from her thoughts and he like, I don't know if you're a mutant or not. Charles, like, can you, I don't know, get a grip or something? Can you, like, actually believe other people are mutants? I know this is really early on in your mutant crusade to save them and have cohability with humans, but, like, come on.
0: (laughs) I'm completely with you on that, actually. Like, I've always thought that scene is so, I don't want to say creepy, but there is something about that scene that I can't wait to get to because it's part of one of the many layers of this story. The heart of this story from 161 to 166 is that the X-Men are now the prisoners of the brood who, thanks to Deathbird, are aware of mutants on Earth which could be the best possible host for their progeny. This leads to one of my all-time favorite issues ever, and I could fucking do an entire episode about that one issue for the rest of my life. But before we get there, 161-166 through 166 recounts the X-Men's desperate attempts to get home, unaware that the brood have implanted them with eggs. In the interim, there are several narratives that intersect with this main idea. We see Corsair on Earth with Alex and Lorna realizing he has to return to the stars because, frankly, the world's not big enough for him. But he also can't bring his son with him because he will not set Alex up for that kind of death and failure. Elsewhere, Xavier brooding over the loss of his children. Oh God, bad Frizat! Ugh, by. Ugh, <sighs> Xavier, all sad panda about the fact that he's lost the X Men yet again. This guy loses the like he needs X Men. Lojack. This guy loses X Men like I lose my fucking house keys.
1: Does he? He should have X Men insurance where he gets paid for every time he loses them because it's ridiculous how many times they actually are separated and Charles really does direct them.
0: It really is. He's just constantly like, Roar, "My babies," so he's hanging out being all kinds of sullen when moira and stevie okay so i love stevie i really do that scene where she's like ah my spasm that's just a little bit much claremont but I,
1: I, yeah that's a little too on the nose i don't think that's how i don't really think that's how that works but you know what i'm glad we get a little bit more into stevie hunter
0: oh, absolutely i'm just such a big stevie fan and i think she's always been one of the best things about this era and in that moment we get a throwback to something now. I promised this would come back up, and here it is. Moira says to Xavier that just because he's lost the X-Men doesn't mean it's time to give up forever. As a matter of fact, she brings up a mutant that we already know from giant-sized no from Marvel an, no, from Marvel Team-Up Annual number one hundred, Chris Claremont and Frank Miller's co-creation of Karma, the possession mutant. This scene is so indicative. Of what I was saying just a few moments earlier, that at this point, Claremont really likes a story avalanche. Moira says that perhaps Magneto could train her, or Emma Frost's Massachusetts Academy. Now, of course, this is a horrifying notion to Xavier, as it should be to all of us. And I don't want to talk too much about how Moira knowing exactly how to get at Charles in retrospect is like the greatest thing I've ever read, but... At the same time, that narrative is so removed from space, it almost seems to me, Jonah, like this narrative might be leading to some new mutes.
1: Uh, It really might. And even before we talk about that, I do want to say this. I think Moyer pushing Charles's button is amazing, especially looking back of what we now know. But I do think it was a little bit of a low blow to say, oh, and Charles, Proteus is my boy. He could have been yours as well. That's a little harsh. And we love We love to rag on Charles. But right now, Charles isn't in the best state for reasons out of his control and he doesn't really understand. So I don't really think that was fair of Moira to kick a dead horse, you know?
0: I, you know, machine gun Moira every now and then comes a little hard. I love her. And you know I love her. One of the things that we have stated time and time again since the first episode of this show is that Moira McTaggart is a brilliant badass And she, much like Xavier, knows how to manipulate in a masterful way. Genuinely, one of the things I love the most about the contradictions and reconciliations that I feel like I'm constantly saying those words on this show anymore, but that's what Claremont's always asking us to do. We get so many parallels in this arc, whether it's Corsair saying that Earth will never be enough to hold him again now that he's seen the stars, or Carol saying now that she's merged with a star, she'll never be able to go home, contrasted with Storm's temporary merging with an Aconte. We're told right away that Storm's merging with the Akanti is exclusively till it's strong enough on its own. But we're not told that of binary. There's this chain reaction of repeated motifs. Xavier helps Gabrielle Holler, in her mind, break free of trauma through the use of psychic devices to break down memory blocks and that's essentially what he does for himself to wake up at the end of 161 we then get another parallel of that where moira without the use of any mutant ability it would seem is able to push charles through his psychic boundaries by confronting him with past traumas and forcing him to realize the bigger picture claremont has an incredible knack For helping us to see the humanity in these completely separate narratives. I find myself constantly pleasantly surprised by how many stories he's able to keep moving all at once. Admittedly, my notes for the first few issues here say that I feel like I've spent no time with any of the X-Men. Because 161 and 162, man, those are just Logan. 161 and 162, man, those are just Xavier and Logan.
1: Absolutely. And I think 162 is an amazing story. It's beautifully told. It's interestingly told. It's something new we haven't seen before. It's focusing on Wolverine. And as we get the puzzle pieces of trying to figure out what exactly is happening to Wolverine, and when we do figure everything out, it makes sense that it has to be Wolverine if this story is going to be told. But you know, this is the X-Men, this isn't Wolverine's solo title, it would have been nice to either not do this story, save it for a different time, and help make this more cohesively an X-Men story overall, because it doesn't become an X-Men story until about halfway into 163.
0: I completely agree with that assessment, without a doubt. I feel like we've been complaining more and more that issue by issue, we're sort of losing sight of the X-Men, and we're getting pictures of individual X-Men at a time. Now, Claremont's going to use that device quite literally, breaking the team into many pieces and focusing on one of them at a time for over a year at one point. Here, I don't know that that disjointedness is supposed to come through. But let me say, Wolverine's starring role In Uncanny X-Men 162 is, for my money, like the height of Claremont telling Wolverine stories by himself, I only regret that Paul Smith did not start on 162. No offense to Mr. Cockrum, who we have championed and loved for the last year as we are coming up on the first anniversary of X's for Podcast. But man, oh man, oh man, oh man, as much as I enjoy Dave Cockrum, by this point, I feel I can start to see the exhaustion in his pencils.
1: Just a little bit. It's noticeable. There's nothing wrong with the art, but it's not popping as it should be, you know? I think there maybe might have been a hit or a miss with how exciting the story could be and, and how he could have pushed the boundaries of his art and what the story could have told in the environment, but... That's okay.
0: I completely agree. What we got is certainly not bad. I like it very much. By the time Paul Smith starts, though, that art on Paul Smith's first two issues is just... I love Paul Smith. I'm a huge Paul Smith guy. His run on X-Men is terrific. But I'm getting ahead of myself yet again. Man, I just like this arc so much. I can't focus. But to talk for a moment about Wolverine and that solo issue... uh, Everything that they do with Logan, at this point, is building a legend. He has his own unique language. He refers to the brood as Slezoids. That's just... Okay, I love it. I just love it. I don't even care. I just love it. 1,000%. It's amazing. And that very end media res storytelling, we start with Logan running, and we start to put together the pieces. Maybe he's in the Savage Land. Nope, it's an alien planet. That vision of Mariko, and then she dies in front of him, and he says, Oh, God, just please let it be a nightmare. And, oh... just oh it's so good this is why i love logan this is why i love wolverine
1: and i completely see that and i completely agree with everything you're saying it's showing wolverine's resilience and it's kind of at the point where you know wolverine is so comfortable with the x-men and really does care about them that he even says it's so much easier to give up right now and it's easier for me to not try but i have to And I really do respect that about him as a hero and as a person and a character being written.
0: And there's something about Claremont really understanding the voice of Logan that somehow works for me, even though it's a little bit of that Claremont hyper-narration, and perhaps they weren't quite sure how to do the letters just yet, but on the 6th and 7th pages of Uncanny X-Men 162, we get a two-page spread that blows my mind. It beautifully mirrors the Akanti reveal from roughly halfway through Uncanny 156. They are beautiful mirrors of each other, although this is a rather grotesque beauty. And Logan's dialogue somehow isn't ridiculous, even though it should be it's a feeble joke i don't laugh when you're condemned to hell does it really matter whether the flames that burn you are a million degrees hot or a billion either way it hurts okay i survived hooray for me that's the least of my props in the jungle at night i never got a decent look at where i was dawn changes that and the sight takes my breath away a skeleton stretching further than the eye can see Well over the horizon, its ribs reaching above the breathable planetary atmosphere, this had been one of the Brood's living starships. A sentient being enslaved, lobotomized, consumed by these winged parasites... It had died here, ages ago, and the brood had made use of its carcass as they had its body while it lived. The natural flora and fauna of this world were trying to claim it as they would any corpse, through natural process of decay. But it was too big. Eternity wouldn't be long enough to crumble it to dust. Oh my god! That's like the best thing Claremont's ever written.
1: I agree. It's so prolific and it's almost a shock that it's coming from Wolverine. But if you really pay attention to how Wolverine has been written these past few issues, it's slowly culminating to kind of one of these moments like this.
0: Yeah, I really feel like it's been a a slow process of peeling back the layers since the end of the Dark Phoenix saga. But whether it was his jaunt with Kurt to Canada to connect with Alpha Flight, or its tender moments, like when he gives Kitty a kiss and says, I'm sorry, kiddo, as she sleeps, he loves this child as his own. And that is something that our Logan would not have been able to do in Giant Size X-Men number one.
1: No, absolutely not. It's also Wolverine saying, you know, I don't have faith, I can only really rely on the things that I can physically and tangibly sense, but he tells Kurt, I'm not alone, I have you, and I think that's really sweet, and I thought that was a really great moment as well.
0: Because the idea that Logan could be by himself, alone, and alienated is a humongous theme of this issue. It's not a mistake or by happenstance that Claremont used the design of Fang to show Wolverine how the brood's abilities work. Fang, maybe not the most memorable character from Uncanny X-Men 104-108, to certainly has a recognizable costume. As a matter of fact, the Fang costume showed up in several other titles.
1: Because Wolverine stole it. Exactly! (laughs) Like, literally stole that actual costume. He took it off of his body, which... uh, Okay, if we could talk about that for two seconds... Wolverine stripped someone down to take his costume in the middle of a fight and thought it was a great idea to change. I mean... Go on. Go on. <laughs> I mean... <you laughs> he know, left him naked like, in the middle of a fight. That's
0: okay. so Logan okay. was upset because another queen had a better wig than him, so he snatched it. What? So... That's
1: a <laughs> wig. Snatch. I don't know. That's not... No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so... By using Fang, even if not a character we can identify, a costume we can identify from having been on Wolverine, Claremont and Cockrum are able to conjure up images of Wolverine's mortality without actually having to do anything to Wolverine at this point. They manage to continue growing the intense fear of the narrative, and I think, for for my sake, some of my all-time favorite Dave Cockrum pages are the final three pages of this issue. Whether it's Wolverine proudly, powerfully standing in that splash page, covered in bits of a Conti and Flora, throwing brood that are trying to strangle him as he begins to lose his fight to the disease, eating him from the inside. And then Cockrum's expressive forms of showing Logan defeat the monster inside him, showing Logan overcome the transformation. There's that point where he swipes his claws through the air, like some kind of hyperdramatic magician. And I don't know, everything about this works for me. 162 is far and away. One of my favorite comic stories ever. From 162, one of my all-time favorites, to 163, which, while not one of my favorite issues ever, definitely references one of my favorite movies ever. On this very same network, Kevo of Captain Britain Miracle Man and I have a show called Alien AlienLegacy.html where we dissect the alien movie franchise, film by film. Jonah, I do believe you had some choice words about the end of this issue.
1: Oh, you, you mean how not only do the breed just look like the aliens from Am- alien but kitty killing one of them by opening the airlock
0: oh where i mean he literally copied alien more note for note than the last time he copied alien note for note
1: yeah just um just a little bit only difference is that queen doesn't speak english
0: Yeah, it does not. Before we can get to any rehashes of any phenomenal films, we do have what makes a lot of sense for me as a storyteller, as a logical conclusion of a progression that we've been watching with great curiosity. Carol Danvers and her purpose in the X-Men has not really been clear to me yet. We've had her in this book since roughly Uncanny X-Men 149. And here we are on Uncanny X-Men 163, and once again, the narrative follows her perspective. We spend seven pages with her, a victim of the brood and their horrifying machines, amazed by her DNA structure being a complex human Cree hybrid, and we get Logan saving her. Whether or not you necessarily see the value in that Logan-Carol relationship, or you ship it or you don't, or they're just war buddies, whatever you want to go with. I do feel like Logan saving her first, and especially that amazing panel of her eyes switching in and out of the cosmos and her beautiful natural baby blues, I feel like we really are starting to get what Claremont's been trying to do this whole time. I no longer feel like I'm being led along. I feel like Carol's part of the X-Men's ride, although that weird fucking space kimono is the ugliest fucking thing I've ever seen. Shh, sh-
1: we're not going to talk about the fashion The normal normally the very fashion forward x-men but i do want to interject about something because it does pertain to carol danvers in storm and scott having a fight over leadership and scott being so upset that the x-men are getting negative publicity and to that i want to say i understand why scott was so upset but the x-men clearly have talked about that mission and what went down the only way for that not to happen of the mutants destroying the Pentagon would be that Carol Danvers was not there because the only reason why the fight started was Carol fighting with Rogue. But Carol was the only one who was able to get them access to anywhere where they need to go. So it doesn't matter who went where. It doesn't matter what the original plan was. Everything was thrown out of whack because of Rogue and eventually Raven, but Raven didn't really do much at all. We kept
0: being like, this is the worst hiding job ever. It's like, have you ever had like a nephew or niece that you have to play hide and seek with? And they're like, okay, I'm gonna hide. And they just, like, step slightly to the side and go behind, like, a coat rack with nothing on it. And just, like, (laughs) you can't see me.
1: Or, like, they go, like, behind curtains, but their feet are showing. Like that.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. A thousand percent. That's Raven's version of hiding at the Pentagon. It's very, hey, bitches, I'm not a terrorist. And it is quite a weird plan. But Carol really is the reason that that whole thing goes cockeyed. Granted, she's the only reason they have access, but it is kind of that thing that we're talking about. What is Carol's purpose? What is Carol providing to the story here that we're growing from? For my sake, I really do like this portion of Carol's journey, and I think it makes a lot of sense that her unique DNA structure, a space DNA structure that's meant to be transformative and adaptive, would have some weird reactions to so many foreign DNAs being introduced to it. Now, I don't have a whole lot to say about the Corsair Alex Lorna pages. Like I said, if Corsair had brought Alex with him to space... I'd probably think he was a pretty irresponsible dad.
1: It was a little bit of a den-if-you-do, den-if-you-don't kind of moment for corsair but really I, I don't even think that was necessary I, I granted it was foreshadowing for the starjammers to eventually save the day but that could have easily happened without that page you know i don't really even think that was necessary now isn't the time to see corsair struggle with his fight of parenthood and duty and space or whatever and how is he supposed to treat his adult sons i don't think we need that just yet you can save it for after this ripoff of alien
0: I kind of really like that. You know, we don't need that right now. Not that I don't enjoy seeing Corsair finally get some emotional closure. And not that I'm not all for men being able to be emotionally vulnerable with other men. But I do feel like because Claremont only has these 22 pages a month, he's constantly forcing us to... Except some shoehorned moments that, really, I would rather be spending time with the X-Men in space, because the X-Men reuniting and, like, were you confused as hell when Colossus is just, like, back with them?
1: Uh, yeah they sk- he skips a couple of moments of the rest of the x-men being woken up but being split in a certain way i don't even think that was the best way to split it considering that kurt and kitty were both still under the hallucinogenics of they're both still under the illusions and not understanding that they really weren't on a shiar ship they probably should have sent storm with them as well it was like a little bit of a misstep they were going a little too fast and it was just really confused it was confusing i absolutely agree that it was confusing
0: Especially when you're going month by month and it's these 22 pages and that's all you have every month. It's the kind of thing that could very well have been more exciting read in the form it was intended. But as we're going back and we're examining all of this at once, some of the pacing issues really, really caught my attention in 161 to 163.
2: Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Ye old X-Rex with your humble host, Matthew. Alright, that sounded funnier in my head, but I'm not changing it. It fits with today's rec, so let's get to that before I embarrass myself further. James Logan Howlett, aka Wolverine, aka Weapon X, aka Patch, aka that furry Canadian midget with an attitude problem. Never knew his past, nor did we as readers. For decades, we got bits and pieces of where he'd been and what he'd done, but nobody knew where he came from. That is until 2001, when Marvel produced a six-issue miniseries simply titled Origin. This series shows us Wolverine. Wolverine's childhood into young adulthood, and man is it good. In 2013, a sequel series titled Origin 2 was released, and Man Is It a Letdown by comparison. Origin starts off with a young girl named Rose, being orphaned and coming to work for the Hallett estate as a servant and friend to the young sickly boy named James. They, along with the groundskeeper Thomas's son, dog, form a close friendship, much to Thomas' disapproval. Turns out he's kind of a dick. He finally crosses the line with John Hallett Jr., the owner of the estate and James' father, and is removed from the property. Before he leaves, though, he holds Rose hostage and uses her to get to James's mother, get to James's mother's room. He attempts to get her to come with him, implying some sort of prior intimate relationship, but things go awry when John enters the room with James in tow. Violence ensues, and tragedy strikes as Thomas shoots John in the head, James tackles and or punches Thomas in the abdomen, Thomas drops to the ground bleeding from six puncture roots in the chest, and everyone's still alive, especially James, freaks the fuck out about the sick kid who just sprouted a claws, and that's the night Wolverine got his powers. With a little funding from John Howlett Sr., who implies James' long-dead brother had a similar quote-unquote affliction, Rose and James flee to the Canadian wilderness and begin a life in a quarry. They make a point of keeping to themselves so as to avoid suspicion, but still manage to make friends within the town, most notably with the Foreman Smitty. James also makes friends with the local wolf pack because of course he does. The story culminates in Rose and Smitty becoming a couple, James having a less than great reaction, and then Dog reappearing to hunt them both down. Much as I hate spoiling these recommendations, I can't not bring up the one part of the ending. James unintentionally stabs and kills Rose, queuing him to flee into the woods and live with the wolves. Bonus points for happening in a snowy village, so it's an almost literal fridging. Origin is an excellent story in itself, with some prob- problematic and irritating aspects. The art is c- consistent, and lends itself well to the setting, the characters are well fleshed out, and it sheds light on a period of Wolverine's life that we had never been privy to. But, and this is a big but, there's some rampant fat phobia in regards to James Tormentor, a fair bit of possessive, toxic, heteromale bullshit, though that actually isn't as bad as it immediately appears, aforementioned fridging, which is exactly as bad as it appears. Also, there's a moment where the evil cook cuts the fuse on a stick of dynamite so that James will be caught in an explosion, and and okay, evil plot and dick move, but this also relies on James being goddamn blind in order to not notice? Also, James gets the nickname Wolverine in here because he digs so well. I'm not kidding. That's fucking lame, and I challenge anyone to convince me otherwise. Those gripes aside, though, I actually really enjoyed Origin. It's a strong, emotional story, and it gets bonus points for being told from Rose's perspective primarily. It is odd that neither she nor Smitty ever show up in Wolverine's lore outside of these six issues, though, especially given all the potential plot hooks strewn throughout the series. I was admittedly planning to do Origin 2 as a separate recommendation, but honestly, I can't even recommend it, let alone devote that much time to it. I felt like I had to at least mention it in here, though, given that it was intended as a direct sequel to Origin. Two starts off well, with an interesting and beautiful first issue, but quickly devolves into a pretty run-of-the-mill story, plagued by the same possessive male BS as its predecessor, and ending with another fridging, though at least this time the woman recovers, unbeknownst to Wolverine. It's a shame, because I love Kieran Gillen's work generally, but yeah, no. Hard pass on this one. I will give credit where it's due. There are two lines in this series that I love. Nathaniel Essex says, Gentleman does not imply gentleness, which is just so very him. And then there's a line about where it isn't the animal and Wolverine that's the problem, it's the man, which I swear has to be a reference to Angel on Buffy. Anyway, that's all I've got to say about that. As per usual, you can find me on Instagram at up to a little homo. By the time this airs, I'll be gearing up for DragonCon in Atlanta, so I'm sure my page will be covered in stressed out, last minute cosplay fun. If anyone's going to be at the con, say hi, and I'll be back next time with something a little more hip and groovy than the Canadian Wilds. TTFN!
0: seems like we've had so much to talk about that we're gonna have to split this into a sudden two-parter. Jonah, it has been incredible covering this material with you and really examining this arc in such detail. I guess I didn't realize we'd have so much to say about it, but 161 to 166 represents seven issues of material that covers so many elements of what the X-Men have been building toward for so long. Before we break till next episode, Jonah, do you have any thoughts on On where we're leaving the X Men in the crosshairs of the Brood.
1: I will say this timing wise, I think it was actually pretty great to have this happen right after they thought they could celebrate because the Brood are a very massive threat right now. And I think waiting a certain number of issues to try to tell this story, I don't think it would have the same effect as it does with immediately happening and immediately showing. That the brood are serious and they mean business. And they got down to business by implanting those embryos into the X-Men. So I am really appreciative of that. And I think that helps with the cohesiveness of the story and what Chris was trying to tell. I think there may have been a misstep here or there with pacing and, you know, focusing solely on one X-Men at a time when this is a team book. But this was a great way to kind of throw everybody into the deep end there are going to be changes if you thought there were changes already and you can see the changes throughout all these issues is already written there's a lot more going on that it's really gonna shake up the x-men's world
0: i agree it is really going to shake up the x-men's world and until we come back to shake them down jonah where can everybody find you online
1: not becoming one with the universe and a white star and white black hole, whatever. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> becoming binary. You can actually find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you?
0: You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Now and Again, where I talk about pop music with my childhood best friend Chris Podcasts. You can find me on this show in our other amazing feeds like Dawn of X, where we take a look at Jonathan Hickman's brilliant revitalization of the X-Men comic book franchise and the upcoming Thor Bros, where along with my best buddy Kyle, we take a look at the Thor relaunch that took place around Civil War. Don't forget to check out HTML, the show that I do with my husband, Jonah's boyfriend, the amazing Kevo, where we talk about movies and Kevo does the deepest BTS you've ever deep dived into your entire life. Check me out on Instagram as well at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until next time, guys, we're going to see you on the other side of that white star. See ya!